this is Soul Searching, Gay Essay Radio's show of the year in 2016. This is the program where we explore all spiritual, psychological and wellness matters that matter. I'm a therapist, NLP practitioner and coach of many years experience, and I understand the challenges life throws at us in this fast-paced modern world. This show offers you alternative ideas new ways of looking at life, and practical solutions to help you redesign your life for the better. Personal growth isn't always easy. It requires that you do a bit of real soul-searching by conducting a penetrating self-examination of your motives, convictions, and attitudes. You should regularly challenge your personal beliefs and thoughts to open your mind to fresh ideas and free thinking. I'll be asking those awkward questions poking holes in rigid belief systems and challenging the way the world taught us to think. I don't expect you to give up your sacred beliefs. And there are times when you will disagree with me. That's just perfect. So thank you for being an important part of this community and remember that you do contribute to the success of the show by sharing it with your friends. I'm Tom Budge. The title of our show today is let me remember that there is no sin. One of the most destructive memes ever to reach my brain was that I was born into sin. From as young as I can remember, I was taught that God was watching me, ever evaluating everything I did, filling in a meritorious scorecard of good and evil and using it to judge me either as one of his loyal adherents or as a supporter of the devil. I was taught that the original Hebrew and Greek words for sin both meant to miss, in the sense of missing a target or not reaching a goal, especially a moral one. I was further taught that sin was introduced first in the spirit plane before it found its way down to earth. For unknown ages, full harmony with God prevailed until a spirit creature, referred to simply as the resistor or adversary, the word in Hebrew that describes this as Satan, disrupted everything God had achieved. The Bible does not name him, but refers to him by title alone, Satan, or the devil. Satan is God's chief adversary. He was the first to challenge God, and he turned a perfect universe into a dualistic one containing both good and evil. So why does God, the supposedly almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent being, allow him to continue? Why not just squish him as we might do with an ant at our picnic? Simply wipe him out if he's causing so much disruption. No, God leaves Satan unhindered for ages to wreak havoc here on earth, and, I presume, elsewhere in the universe too. Satan certainly succeeded in undermining goodness with rampant corruption, widespread suffering, poverty, disease, and even death. Remember the perfect paradise, Eden, that was home to God's most prized creation, mankind? Well, it was Satan, talking through the snake in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tempted Eve to pick and eat the forbidden fruit, which led to the demise of all of Adam and Eve's offspring. That's supposedly why we are the way we are today, fallen creatures struggling to find our way back to paradise. 
Had I have been God, I would have acted decisively and quickly and would have rooted out evil forces long before they infected all of my creation. Even if Eve had disobeyed God, why not quickly press the reboot button and start again with a fresh couple in the garden? After all, once having fallen from grace, Adam and Eve were doomed to die anyway. So why not do it quickly to nip this infectious attitude in the bud before any children were born to them? In fact, if God was truly so wise, why in the first place create beings like Satan that have the propensity to rebel and challenge? It's like a bug in the firmware. I was taught that God let it be so to test our loyalty by giving us the binary choice of either following him, to be saved, or to follow the devil and face annihilation. If you think about it, it's the bleakest and most miserable story ever told. Belief in this religion mythology led me into years of self-doubt and self-loathing with no apparent way out of the mess. I grew up in the Jehovah's Witness faith. It wasn't by choice, but as a consequence of having had a Jehovah's Witness mother. The organization taught us that disloyalty to it, God's chosen representation on earth, was the same as being disloyal to God himself. Since Satan was God's first adversary, if we became adversaries to the organization, we would mimic Satan. So any disobedience, disrespect or wanting to leave the organization is tantamount to joining forces with the devil. This set of beliefs isn't unique to the witnesses, but is core to many other religions too. The ploy usually works and acts as a herding force, keeping devotees loyal to the cause. Many followers are simply too frightened to challenge the status quo or to jump ship to join another religion. Most stay more or less in the center of the full set of teachings, navigating a precarious course through life. But there is a big problem that really won't go away. What if you're naturally different and can't help doing some of the things you're not allowed to do? A good example of this, and one which trapped me, is being gay. What do you do then? Do you completely deny the way nature turned you out? Or do you continue doing what your neurology drives you to do? This poses a huge conundrum that many people in most religions have to face. This idea of sin and its consequences is rather mean. Firstly, I had no choice about my birthrights, so why keep punishing me for something Eve did? Why am I subjected to this ongoing feud between God and the devil, like some failed relationship where parents cannot find consensus and where children suffer intolerably? I almost feel like saying to God, don't you dare punish me for something I didn't do and don't make your relationship, one of father and son, so insanely difficult. I may be completely wrong and I'm okay if you are ready to challenge me on this, but as far back as I can remember, this is the kind of dialogue I had had with God. Surely some key part of my understanding was missing. Either religion is a hugely conspired myth to keep society in check and the religions in power, or I'd misunderstood something and saw something that really wasn't there. It was only in my mid-forties when I started reading up on alternative views regarding these matters. 
There was a long stretch of time between my excommunication from the witnesses at the age of 27 and the resurgence of my spiritual interest. Materialism, ambition, mild promiscuity and an all-too-frequent use of drugs were the hallmarks of this period. My attitude then was, I'm so f***ed up, so why bother? Since I'm destined to go to hell, I might as well get the most out of life now. One of the first set of books I read was Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Walsh transcribed his conversation with God in these books. Here are a few passages taken from them, all pertaining to the concept of sin. Walsh asked God, Isn't there some less painful way, other than the calamities that befall us, less painful to ourselves and to others, to create opportunities for us to experience ourselves. God replied, Judgment is often based upon previous experience. Your idea about a thing derives from a prior idea about the thing. Your prior idea results from a still prior idea, and that idea from another and so forth, like building blocks, until you get all the way back in the hall of mirrors to what I call first thought. All thought is creative, and no thought is more powerful than original thought. That is why this is sometimes also called original sin. Original sin is when your first thought about a thing is in error. That error is compounded many times over when you have a second or third thought about a thing. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to inspire you to new understandings, which can free you from your mistakes. This is refreshingly different from the fire and damnation that I'd been taught as a boy. What was God saying to Walsh? He is inferring that we have a mistaken perception that has been compounded time and again until it became the myth about sin that we have today. God seems to be saying to Walsh that we made a mistake about our purpose and our role in the universe. That erroneous thought occurred very, very long ago, and each of us has bought into it and thus carried it forward in the form of this illusion of how things are. To be free of sin, we need to come to new understandings about ourselves. But how? A little further on in the book, God went on to say, Very few of the value judgments you have incorporated into your truth are judgments you, yourself, have made based on your own experience. Yet experience is what you came here for. And out of your experience were you to create yourself. You have created yourself out of the experience of others. If there were such a thing as sin, this would be it to allow yourself to become what you are because of the experience of others. This is the sin you have committed, all of you. Here, God is saying that we should learn about ourselves from our own experiences and that we cannot and should not try to learn from the experiences of others. But what experiences is God referring to because we have an infinite spectrum of many different experiences to choose from, ranging from good to bad? Must we choose between these experiences? And if so, how? 
flick a page or two and we find Walsh and God talking about the purpose of the human soul. God said, the purpose of the human soul is to experience all of it, so that it can be all of it. Walsh then challenges God by asking, You seem to be saying, for instance, that we should love the wrong so that we can get to know the right. Are you saying we must embrace the devil, so to speak? God replied, How else do you heal him, the devil? Of course, a real devil does not exist, but I reply to you in the idiom you choose. Healing is the process of accepting all, then choosing best. Do you understand that? You cannot choose to be God if there is nothing else to choose from. You have even created religions that tell you that you are born in sin, that you are sinners at birth, in order to convince yourself of your own evil. Yet if I told you, you are born of God, you are pure gods and goddesses at birth, pure love, would you reject me? All your life you have spent convincing yourselves that you are bad. Not only that you are bad, but that the things you want are bad. Sex is bad. Money is bad. Joy is bad. Power is bad. Having a lot is bad. A lot of anything. Some of your religions have even got you believing that dancing is bad. Music is bad. Celebrating life is bad. Soon you'll agree that smiling is bad, laughing is bad, loving is bad. No, no, my friend. You may not be very clear about many things, but about one thing you are clear. You, and most of what you desire, are bad, having made this judgment about yourself. You have decided that your job is to get better. Wow, this requires a huge recalibration from past beliefs. There are a few inspiring statements in this passage. 1. The devil does not really exist. 2. The notion of sin is man-made because we misjudged our role in this universe. God never created us in sin, but rather in perfection as gods and goddesses. And three, because we chose to see ourselves as sinners, we had to create a path back to righteousness. So, conversations with God teaches us that, one, the devil does not really exist. Two, that the notion of sin is man-made because we misjudged our role in this universe. God never created us in sin, but rather in perfection as gods and goddesses. And that three, because we choose to see ourselves as sinners, we had to create a path back to righteousness. This, however, is a redundant belief if you choose to accept yourself as a perfect entity in all aspects of your being. The belief we create about our own reality is not one of sin, but in truth, we are made in His likeness and image as the perfect sons and daughters of this greater Godhead. Much further on in conversations with God, God makes this statement. This alleged state of imperfection in which you are said to have come into this world is what your religionists have the gall to call original sin. And it is original, but not yours. It is the first sin to be perpetrated upon you by a world which knows nothing of God if it thinks that God would, or could, create anything imperfect. 
Now that's a mighty powerful statement. I'm also in deep awe of what the disembodied being Emmanuel said almost in poetic verse about these matters. He is a wise being who has no body and who speaks through the mediumship of Pat Rodegast. Here, Emmanuel spoke of our purpose and how we should live our lives to the fullest. To love yourself is the final hurdle, the definitive frontier of humanity. Illusion delights in embellishing its own importance. I must earn the right to enlightenment, you say, by doing 10,000 prostrations, by sitting for long periods of time in great discomfort, by fasting until I'm almost dead, by devoting at least seven lives to the unselfish service of the poor. Then, perhaps... Some of you fear that when you die there will be an awesome tribunal sitting in judgment upon you, the truth of this matter is that the first thing you see when you leave your body is light. The first thing you hear is laughter. And the first thing you feel is love. The moment you are fully present in self-love, you will recognize wisdom where it has always been. You did not choose to become human to then escape your lives. You came to live them. And live them you will. Some of you may choose to remain distanced. You have all felt the pain of such distancing after moments of love, of glory, when you feel alienated from the feast of life, still hungry and perhaps more empty than before the feast began. As I read these transcripts many years ago, this new twist on life surprised me. These writings were all saying something in heavy opposition to the traditional thinking I had been taught as a youth. These conversations were saying that life is simply an experience, one that we should strive to experience to the fullest, and that we should do it without judging ourselves. To experience all of life, we will have to experience both good and bad. Only then are we able to choose between them. There is no choice if there is only one thing to choose from. Most refreshing of all is the idea that we were never born into sin, we were born into love and perfection. So, if we say that sin and the devil do not exist, and that we, these perfect gods and goddesses, are here to experience ourselves to the fullest, then what about morals and ethics? Where does this new idea leave us with regard to these things? There is another fine book which is a must-read in this alternative spiritual genre. It is A Course in Miracles. Now, this text has a fascinating history. Helen Shookman was an American clinical research psychologist from New York City. She was a professor of medical psychology at Columbia University in New York from 1958 until her retirement in 1976. She, with the help of her colleague William Thetford, compiled the book from the dictation of what she claimed was given to her by an inner voice she identified as Jesus. However, according to her request, her role as its writer was not revealed to the general public until after her death. The first edition of A Course in Miracles was published in 1975. Many people believe that these were Jesus' private teachings to his inner circle of disciples in contrast to his teachings to the masses, as we find recorded in the Bible. 
If this is true, we'd expect to find congruent themes between A Course in Miracles and Biblical Epistles. If there were any discrepancies between the two, we'd first have to ensure that they weren't due to our misunderstanding and not contradictory errors in the teachings. Lesson 259 in The Course in Miracles introduces us to the teachings about sin. It has this to say. Sin is the only thought that makes the goal of God seem unobtainable. This is an interesting statement, and it makes sense when we unpick it and tease its elements apart. Sin is not described as a reality, a thing, a situation, or a condition, but is instead referred to as the only thought that makes the goal of God seem unobtainable. It suggests that sin is an illusion, the consequences of a judgment we made about what we call good and bad. It's the one thought that separates us from God and leaves us in doubt about our own divinity. But there's another subtle twist in this phraseology of the statement. It is the only thought that makes the goal of God seem unobtainable. What is meant by the clause, the goal of God? We could read it as God's goal for us, or we could read it as our goal of trying to be godlike. Let me give you my longhand interpretation of this passage. Sin is an illusory thought, a myth, of how we see ourselves with respect to God, and it is the only thought that prevents us from being God. That last part sounds a little blasphemous at first. It prevents us from being God. But is it? We find consistent teachings in the Bible and in these alternative spiritual views that keep telling us that we are made in the likeness and image, not as human beings in physical bodies, but as perfect spiritual beings having this earthly, physical experience as humans. The idea of sin is then merely our forgetfulness of who we truly are, divine perfect beings, in favor of a mythical belief of who we think we are, mortal sinners. Lesson 259 continues. What else could bind us to the obvious and make the strange and the distorted seem more clear? What else but sin engenders our attacks? What else but sin could be the source of guilt demanding punishment and suffering? And what but this could be the source of fear obscuring God's creation, giving love the attributes of fear and of attack? It is only because of our erroneous beliefs about this non-existent thing called sin that caused us to separate ourselves, not only from God, but from one another by dividing brother against brother, thus tainting the purity of love by giving it a meaning it never had. Lesson 337 adds this encouragement. My sinlessness ensures me perfect peace, eternal safety, everlasting love, freedom forever from all thought of loss, complete deliverance from suffering. And only happiness can be my state, for only happiness is given me. What must I do to know all this is mine? Must I accept atonement, at one minute, for myself and nothing more? God has already done all things that need to be done, and I must learn I need to do nothing for myself, for I need but accept myself, my sinlessness, created for me, 
now already mine, to feel God's love protecting me from harm, to understand my father loves his son, to know I am the son my father loves. You who created me in sinlessness are not mistaken about what I am. I was mistaken when I thought I sinned, but I accept atonement for myself. Father, my dream is ended now. Amen. How are we supposed to interpret this? If we are sinless in every aspect of life, then we should be able to make some really fascinating statements like, Nothing I do could ever be wrong. If I can't do wrong, then I can never offend God. I can never be in his bad books. Would cheating on my partner not be wrong? Would embezzling funds from my employer not be wrong? Would murdering my neighbor not be wrong? In all of these vast workings of our universe, what happens here on earth is so very, very inconsequential. Our games upon this planet are like the games children play with each other in the sandpit. They're imaginary. We might think they're real, and we may go running back to our Divine Mother, the feminine aspect of our Heavenly Father, with our stories of woe, of what occurred in our games. Mommy, he stole my car and crashed it into the little train. And the Divine Mother gives us a tender hug and reassures us, There, there, my little angel, all is okay. Go back into the sandpit tomorrow and play some more with your friends out there. If some perfect, divine spiritual being needed to experience being murdered in the game, would you oblige and play along as the murderer? It's a scenario that reminds me of the Shakespearean minstrels that journeyed from town to town, putting on their plays for the townsfolk to watch. If the play had a scene of murder, as good Shakespearean stories often do, it would be incumbent upon you as an actor to play your part with all your heart, leaving the audience drawing in gasps of breath as they watched this treachery unfold. But no harm actually occurs. The actors simply retreat to the dressing room, giving each other a high five and a hug and say, wow, thank you for playing your part so well. For if you hadn't played your part so convincingly, I could not have played mine well either. The course puts it so well. The opposite of illusions is not disillusionment, but truth. Every illusion carries pain and suffering in the dark folds of the heavy garments with which it hides its nothingness. Truth is the opposite of illusions, because it offers joy. What else but joy could be the opposite of misery? To change illusions is to make no change. Illusions carry only guilt and suffering, sickness and death, to their believers. Now must you choose between your true self and the illusion of yourself. Not both, but one. Forgiveness is this world's equivalent of heaven's justice. It translates the world of sin into a simple world, where justice can be reflected from beyond the gate behind which total lack of limits lie. Nothing in boundless love could need forgiveness. But forgiveness turns the world of illusory sin into a world of glory, Wonderful to see. Rest assured, there is no sin in this universe. Understand that it is an illusion. 
You and I are forever perfect spirit beings in an ocean of love. We might play our games together, and they may seem so very real to us, but no harm can come to us as we play. Our clothes may get scuffed and torn, our bodies dirty, but when we return at the end of the day into the arms of the Divine Mother, she will be there to welcome us home. Why not, therefore, free yourself from this illusion today by realizing who you really are, a divine, everlasting, perfect creation of immense and limitless possibility? Thank you for listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. Your comments and suggestions help shape this show, and I'm always happy to receive them. Write to me at studio at gayessayradio.co.za or post on the station's social media platforms using the hashtag GaySARadio. My Twitter handle is at TWEBudge. This program premieres on Sundays at 5 p.m. and repeats the following Sunday at 8.30 a.m. A full set of podcasts in this series is available on the station's website, gayessayradio.co.za. Stay right here on Gay SA Radio for all your favorite music, discussions, lifestyle facts, and the latest news. My name is Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.